From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And once again, I'm coming to you from my home studio in Thornhill, north of Toronto. I've, I've moved out of my studio beneath the stairs, temporarily, and into the boys' classroom. I'm also hosting Coast to Coast AM from home. So that involves a few more pieces of equipment, and I need more room. So as I mentioned last night on Coast, you may actually hear the rumbling of a distant train. We are about 200 meters from a CN track. Canadian National Track that moves a lot of freight east to west. In fact, this is, I believe, the busiest or one of the busiest CN rail corridors in Canada. But, you know, after living here for a number of years, I no longer really notice it. You may or may not hear it. But I actually, I love the sound of steel wheels on steel track and the haunting sound of a distant train horn. It's very comforting. Carlos Cagini, Carlos Cagini is my technical producer and Ryan White is the live stream producer and we are streaming live on uh, our YouTube channel Strange Planet this evening. Uh, before we get rolling, I want to give a big thanks to our Star Chamber patrons Denny Bladell and Kirk Shamel. Uh and um, they've been just just awesome. Over really the last year and uh, year and a half, maybe very supportive. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, just go to Patreon.com/slash/StrangePlanet. Also, congrats to this month's Patreon draw winner. Uh, this is where we award some Strange Planet merch to one lucky Patreon supporter, and this month it's Rodney Estrada or Estrada, Rodney Estrada of Phoenix, Arizona. There'll be a mug, a Strange Planet mug. Coming your way very soon, Rodney. Thank you so much for your support. Roswell investigators Tom Carey and Dom Schmidt are here in hour one. They've put together a very impressive, beautiful uh, new book for you Roswell UFO fans. It's a coffee table pictorial book, Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. It came out last month, and we'll discuss some of the most important aspects of the Roswell timeline with the two premier Roswell investigators in the world. In the second hour, Preston Dennett returns to the program. He was with me on Coast last night discussing some of the 15 cases in his new book, On Board UFO Encounters. And we had some very uh, remarkable and emotional calls last night from some alleged abductees that are, who are really, really struggling uh, with what they believe happened to them. In the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired as much fascination, speculation, as the one in Roswell, New Mexico. It began, of course, in the summer of 1947, at the dawn of the Cold War, when the U.S. Army Air Forces sent out a shocker of a press release announcing they'd recovered a flying disc from a ranch near Roswell. More than 70 years later, this incident remains a defining aspect of the area's identity. Of course, the town boasts a UFO museum and a research center, a flying saucer-inspired uh, McDonald's 
alien-themed streetlights, even an extraterrestrial family stranded in a broken-down UFO on the side of State Route 285. I guess they're looking for a jump start. Uh, But behind all the UFO mania lies an uneasy truth. The events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut, with admitted cover-ups and conflicting explanations. It was a saucer. It was a spycraft. It was a weather balloon. It was the Soviets. Tom Carey has a bachelor degree in business administration from Temple University, a master's degree in anthropology from California State University, Sacramento, and he's also received a fellowship to pursue a PhD in anthropology here in in, uh, the University of Toronto. He became interested in UFOs while in high school, rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. Since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell incident that occurred near the town of Roswell in July 47. Tom also became a special investigator for CUFOs, C-U-F-Os, the late uh, J. J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, and in 1992 served on its board of directors uh, from 1997 through 2001. Tom has appeared as a guest on numerous radio and TV shows concerning Roswell, and we're delighted to have Thomas Carey back on The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Thomas, how are you? Nice to be with you, Richard. And uh, Donald R. Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. Prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek for the International UFO Reporter. Don graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of a number of best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell and The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. Presently, he's a contributing writer for UFO Magazine and on the board of directors for the International UFO Research Museum. Don Schmidt, welcome back to, to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, sir? Great to be back with you, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you both. Congratulations. This is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I don't know... How to say this, but I'm just let me ask you: Is is this for you guys sort of the icing on the cake? Is this <laughs> the the last, you know, UFO Roswell? The UFO? icing. There's another one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a layer cake. It's a layer cake. There is another one right after this. <laughs> uh, R- Richard, we uh, we've written three books uh, in the last year and a half. Uh, and I spent most of the day going over the uh, the one we we uh, that came out last year called uh, UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, and uh, we're we're t- and uh, the book we're talking about tonight came it came out last month in uh, uh, I lost track in March. Yes, and then we wrote another one. It's called uh, Roswell: The Ultimate. Cold case file closed. Thinking that would be the, you know, that would and that will that will come out June first of this year. So we thought, well, that there you go, you know, that's that's it. And uh, we, if you know, thinking about it, uh, we had one chapter in that book that's coming out that we said, hey, 
I think that, you know, maybe we could do a whole book on that chapter. And so uh, that possibly is another book that will probably come out next year. So uh, the book we're talking about tonight, uh, well, you know, we can well, it was an idea that we had, and uh, really it was a, a joy to put it together. It's sort of the uh, our complete investigation covering the Roswell case from its inception in 1947 all the way through to the present. And we have over 400 photographic images in it. It's a, it's a coffee table book. And uh, the, uh, you, usually you have the uh, images uh, supplement the text. But in this particular book, the text supplements the images. And uh, right. it's a total timeline. Yes, for for me, it's it's the perfect primer for let's say the 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 person who has heard of Roswell. They may not know um, all of the details, but it's a great way for the let's say the casual Roswell UFO student to really uh, verse themselves in in the details. But and then also for the the diehard Roswell UFO uh, fans, if I can use that term, it's just a it's a great collector item because it's it's such a beautiful book. Well, and, and also because even for Tom and myself, it truly has cemented the case as to, you know, the, the ultimate, you know, UFO case of all time. And that as the book presents it minute by minute, you know, hour by hour, day by day, and it's allowed us to go back and wrestle with the timeline, wrestle with events, fill in gaps, uh, you know, go back, and Tom was wonderful as far as uh, even one of the last trips down to Roswell and being able to pinpoint exactly, for example, where Mac Brazel, that very rancher, was abducted by the military. We thought it was at one location, and then uh, just by retracing his footsteps and where he was at that time, and it makes perfect sense. We plug it into the timeline. And, and, and so for us, too, it was, as Tom said, it was a joy in that you, you, you look at it, you come back, and you go, my God, what else could this have been just by the reaction all the way to the Pentagon, all the way to Washington, because they were treating this as though World War III had started. Right, right. Um, I want to just mention something that I that uh, is in the acknowledgments, and you thank one of the uh, the researchers who was going over the weather data and old weather forecasts that allowed you to pinpoint the actual date of the crash, maybe even more than the date, almost right down to the uh, the hour. Uh, tell me about that. How the weather data and forecasts helped you pinpoint the date of the crash? Well, uh, witnesses. Uh, early on in the investigation told us that they had uh, uh, heard of, uh, there was a thunder, a terrific thunderstorm. This is the monsoon season down in uh, New Mexico in July. Heavy rain, um, uh, heavy thunder and lightning, sometimes even thunder and lightning uh, and no rain, but these huge uh, thunderclaps and several witnesses uh, in the Corona area uh, reported hearing something different uh, between the thunderclaps. It sounded like a muffled ex- explosion. 
and uh, it was rain again, raining heavily that night. And uh, but they all pinpointed this uh, explosion that they heard uh, during a severe thunder and lightning storm. So uh, over the years, we had come to different conclusions as to what was the date of this uh, particular explosion. And, you know, it started out July the 2nd, uh, 1947, because of uh, a witness in Roswell named uh, Wilmot, who owned a big dr- uh, uh, hardware store there, saw a flying saucer uh, go over Roswell the night of the July the 2nd. And then uh, later on, I think in... Uh, Don and Kevin Randall's second book, uh, they pinpointed it as the evening of July the 4th, based on someone else's testimony. But an associate of ours, uh, David Rudiak, who lives in California, he did some uh, very uh, in-depth research of the weather, weather, uh, weather, weather patterns <laughs> in the uh, central high desert of New Mexico, for that week, and there was only one day, or one you know, one day that there was uh, any uh, rainstorm uh, showing in the, in the weather data, and it was the uh, the night of July the second, uh, nineteen forty-seven. It was the only date that uh, uh, it, uh, this weather data showed a thunder and lightning storm in central. Uh, high uh new mexico so that's that's how we pinpointed the date you also have uh corona rancher gene cole in the book it's nice because uh you know i've I've read these names and so forth but now i'm actually putting faces to names uh which is which is quite nice which is important for people these are these were these are human beings uh you know they're just not case files and so forth but uh, gene cole you say she also heard the craft circling over her ranch house sounding like it was in trouble prior to exploding. Tell me about Jean. Well, we interviewed her, and uh, she lived in the Corona area, rancher, and she said she heard it, uh, this thing, you know, again, it's this thunderstorm, but she heard a device circling her her ranch overhead. And uh, I thought, I, I, I could be mixing her up now with another witness, but I thought she said it, <laughs> it sounded like a lawnmower. In trouble, but uh, she heard it circling uh, overhead, and uh, then she heard it go off. And a, f- a few seconds later, she heard this explosion. So you know, you put two and two together, and it's during a thunderstorm. We know the night of the was July the second, and uh, the explosion. And uh, as you said. Uh, one of the features of the book is we put uh, faces to names and places. You see, you see where things happened. You see uh, who it happened to. It uh, the book puts the reader almost in into the case. You, it it brings the case to life for the reader. Right. And, and, right. Uh, we have her picture there, and uh, that was her story. She heard it overhead, and then then she heard. A few seconds later, uh, further in the distance, uh, an explosion, the, the so-called muffled explosion. So the crash the, the evening of... The, sorry, go ahead, yes, Don. ...witnesses in Roswell, like William Woody, and there, were, there was personnel at the Roswell Army Airfield. There were some nuns. There was a free, uh, former 
a nun by the name of Day who informed us that she had seen a diary entry talking about what appeared to be a uh, meteor uh, or a shooting star, but it was glowing red and it arced downward north of Roswell. They weren't able to give us a precise evening, but tying all that into that July 2nd weather uh, documentation from the Stallion uh, Weather uh, Network at that time that Dr. Rudiak uh, provided us. Uh, We're very confident that we can nail that July 2nd late evening down as the official night of the crash. Uh, for years, there was some speculation as to whether it may have been the radar installations the air in, in the area that somehow caused some interference with the craft's navigation system. Um, others have suggested lightning. Have you have you ruled out radar, or are you are you convinced that it was lightning that brought it down? Well, one of the things that we learned through the course of the investigation that uh, wasn't even evident because there's no indication such a facility was there. There was a radar tracking station in Vaughan, New Mexico, which is just 45 minutes from the crash site, the debris field. And then to the southwest at White Sands, Proving Grounds, you had probably the most sophisticated radar facility in the world at that time and mainly because they were conducting all the uh, rocket testing of the captured German V-2s from the war. So all the other radar systems at that time simply tracked incoming. You had aircraft that were approaching, arriving at a base, at a facility, and you would be tracked coming in. White Sands had radar that also tracked outgoing, departing aircraft. That's, again, they were... Uh, they had the, the, the state-of-the-art for that time. And I think a number of our colleagues and other researchers have tried to create a triangulation between the different radar lobes uh, from Kirtland up in Albuquerque, I mentioned Vaughn, and then White Sands, and then even in Roswell at that time. And those radar lobes, as they circle around those areas, guess where they all happen to intersect? Lincoln County, around Corona. Ah. Mm -hmm. So that's where they came up with the theory that um, maybe the radar created some interference with the craft, causing it to have a malfunction. Tom and I, though, tend to uh, accept and side more with the, the notion that because of the severe lightning storm, that it more likely that the storm had something to do with the crash. Uh, we're, we're approaching a break here in about two minutes. I just wanted to comment on the map of the debris field, which is uh, in Roswell, the chronological pictorial. Uh, Thomas, Carey, Don Schmidt, my guests and uh, co-authors. Uh, how did you piece that together? The, uh, the, it's a very detailed, speci- very precise map of the debris field. Is that, you're talking about the schematic? Um. Well, it's 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 a rendering of uh, I don't know if it would be call it a schematic, but it's um, yeah, you know it's I, an. I, I believe uh, Don could address that uh, better than yeah, I. I think it came from QFOS, the uh, Center for UFO Yeah, that was a drawing I, think, uh, I did. Was put together by the them. First, and yeah, the uh, archaeological uh, dig that we did in September of 1989 
and based on the eyewitness testimonies and then that first dig where we laid out a systematic grid and we mapped out the site for future archaeological work, then uh, we created that map of the, uh, the actual uh, expanse of the debris field from the upper pinnacle at the northwest and then moving to the east-southeast about nine-tenths of a mile and how it had that fan pattern. We had, uh, as described by witnesses, a gouge from the upper pinnacle that extended uh, a few hundred feet. So all of that is based on eyewitness firsthand testimony. And so that's why even for that, uh, uh, for that purpose, back in 1989, we were able to uh, even get out into the field and start looking for physical evidence. All right, we, uh, we, have we will... another map oh. uh, or schematic of... Uh, uh, it shows the state of New Mexico and the flight path that uh, highlights the, the so-called debris field site, which is the major site where all the little pieces of wreckage came down when the ship exploded. It highlights the uh, what we call the Deep Proctor body site where uh, Deep Proctor, uh, a neighbor's uh, boy who was with Mac uh, Brazel the day they found the wreckage, uh, uh, reported that that's where Mac found something else we believe was two bodies. And then it shows the final or the third site, the uh, so-called what we call the impact site, where the remains of the ship, the inner cabin or a capsule of some sort came to rest much closer to Roswell. All right, we'll take a quick time out, gentlemen. Back with uh, more of my discussion with Tom Carey, Don Schmidt, Roswell, the timeline, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, UFO paranormal researcher Preston Dennett. He's uh, very prolific. He's got another book out. This one is On Board UFO Encounters, 15 never-before-published case studies. And uh, I mentioned earlier, I was, uh, Preston was with me on coast last night, and we had some callers toward the tail end of the program, very emotional, uh, from some alleged abductees. it was very, very moving. Uh, Thomas Carey and Don Schmidt stay with us. And uh, Roswell, the chronological pictorial is now available. If you have even a passing interest in the Roswell UFO incident, you got to get yourself get yourself a copy. It's just a just a beautiful book. And um, we'll tell you how to get a copy in uh, here towards the tail end of the hour. Uh, uh, Tom, you were talking about the the D Proctor site, which is the the probable location. Where uh, Mac Brazel uh, said he saw "quote end quote" something else, and that something else were were humanoid bodies, two small uh, humanoid bodies. Um, when Mac Brazel was apprehended by the authorities, where did they take him after he discovered the debris field? Took it to see the sheriff. They called the uh, the Roswell Army Air Force Field. Uh, where did they take Brazel, and, and what happened to him during that time? Well, he spent most of his time in the guest house, uh, which is located right as you enter the base. Uh, it's not there anymore. It's been torn down. But fortunately, we got, we got pictures of it be, before, uh, long before it was torn down, So, it, uh, which I might point out that a lot of the 
things that are in the book uh, no longer exist. They have been removed or torn down and have disappeared to history. But uh, we have captured them uh, for the book prior to their, their demise. But uh, uh, Mac Brazel was uh, taken into custody. They found him uh, w- once they realized what the crash represented, the, uh, the fact that it was an extraterrestrial craft with uh, little bodies, about five of them. Well, four were dead and one was still alive. Once they realized, uh-oh, we've got, really got something here, they said, where's, where's that rancher? And uh, they found him at a uh, local coffee shop, uh, which we finally identified for, the, for this book. Uh, we always thought it was down near the base, but it's uh, in town. And uh, they uh, took him back to the base and kept him at the base hospital where they really worked him over. And uh, they, they trying to get, convince him, basically, that he didn't see what he thought he saw, namely all this wreckage and these little bodies. And uh, when that... You know, when that didn't work, uh, they, of course, they issued the, the death threat to him and his family, if he ever talked about it. And uh, there was a big article in the newspaper the next day about how the rancher had recanted his story. But in the end, he said, uh, uh, I've, seen, uh, I've seen balloons before. I know what they are. If I ever find anything uh, other than an atomic bomb, I'm not going to report it. They really upset him, and they worked him over. They gave him a full physical, certainly not for his health, but to, but to check to see, <laughs> to see that he hadn't kept any uh, wreckage in some hidden places. And uh, then they flew him back to his ranch, uh, totally uh, disillusioned and disgusted with his treatment. One of the um, things that yeah, go ahead. You know, I haven't even discussed with Tom yet, and it came to mind the other day, given the, the situation with the pandemic. And we've had numerous military witnesses describe that when they would work out at either the debris field or the impact site, but especially if they were involved with the bodies, that when they would return back to the base, they were first to report to the base hospital. Well, that makes perfect sense, especially if you're talking about concern of contamination. When right. you're dealing with something of that sort, you can only imagine what the concerns were. Uh, I mean, we had men who were picking up the debris talk about how they were actually quite frightened, upset, not knowing whether they were handling something that was going to, you know, damage their health down the road or not. And so I'm wondering more and more myself now that one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that they kept Brazel for as long as they did and why they subjected him to an army physical is that they were also monitoring his health condition. They were seeing if anything developed while he was in their custody. Excellent just point. Imagine if, uh, you know, as civilians go, that if something should have happened, 
then how can they possibly then argue that this was just a weather balloon? Uh, people are developing all types of you know strange new you know maladies that they couldn't explain at that time. So right. that may have been part of the reason that they also needed to uh, you know abduct him as they did. Um, getting back to the Deep Proctor site for a moment, I mean. How many, do we have a handle or do you have a handle on how many neighbors drifted down there to start collecting mementos? How many people might have pieces of this still in their attic somewhere? Yes, uh, uh, there were many. We, we figured there were, uh, not, you know, it wasn't a crowd, but there was uh, several, more than several because uh, they, they, you know, this is near an air base and they're used to having uh, Certain, you know, a certain number of crashes over the years, and uh, it was always the civilians that got to these crash sites uh, before the military. That was just standard operating procedure. Uh, I mean, they lived, you know, in the area, and they hear the crash, and they're out, they're out there, and uh, they always would collect uh, mementos, you know, pieces of wreckage, uh, if, you know, if they could fit them in their pocket and things like that, maybe, you know, whatever. And this would have been no different. And uh, we've had stories over the years uh, of ranchers who had pieces uh, at their house, you know, that they kept. But unfortunately, we've never been able to to pin one of them down to where they would admit it. We've had stories where uh, this one rancher had them over his, uh, you know, he had it over a cattle shed and he used it for target practice. Another one kept it on the television and... uh, but uh, I think we believe that eventually one one will surface. That's our hope. Someone eventually will come forward, or by accident, what have you, and one uh, a piece of uh, real wreckage will uh, be be uh, be seen. But uh, it's because it's because the ranchers got there first, and uh, that. Uh, and you mentioned Deep Proctor. He was with Mac. Uh, with uh, the morning after the, the the crash, he was with Mac when they discovered all that stuff, and the, I'll let Don talk about that. Well, and as Tom knows, we've had so many false alarms through the years, and we've had to, uh, you know, look into every possible lead, every possible story, whether it was photographs or documents, but especially as, you know, as we refer to, you know, the piece of the Holy Grail, to actually come up with a piece of physical evidence that will just prove this overnight. And it's one of the reasons that, yes, we remain very optimistic, we remain hopeful that, uh, you know, somebody is still sitting on the prize, you know, of all time. And Re- I regarding can assure your Proctor, Richard, that you don't uh, believe for a second it's a weather balloon. Right. Yeah. Uh, regarding, you had asked about Deep Proctor, and the uh, reason we know about that was uh, uh, Deep Proctor died uh, at age 66, I guess, somewhere around 19, uh, wow, 96, 97, somewhere in that, that area. And. Um, I know. I guess it was around two thousand and six. It was around two thousand, yeah. 
yeah. a little later, yeah. And uh, according to his mother, Loretta, who actually outlived him, uh, she only died within the last few years, up near up near a hundred, I think. And uh, right, she had told us that uh, that D. She she was actually very sick. This is in the mid nineties. She's she's on her sick bed. They don't know if she's going to recover or not. She's got some sort of uh, malady. I, I don't recall what it was, but here she is it in was a bed, blood, sick blood clot in her uh, carotid artery. Yeah, yeah. Gentlemen, and I got to so I got to take a quick t- gentlemen. Mom, I got to take a break I, here. I want to show I you got- something. <laughs> Gentlemen, can you hear me? I got to take a quick break. We'll uh, we'll pick up on uh, we'll get to Dee Proctor's mother in uh, just a moment. Tom Carey, Don Schmidt stays with us as we explore the Roswell chronology right here on the Conspiracy Show. Back in a moment. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We're back with Tom Carey and Don Schmidt. And uh, Tom, you were talking about Dee Proctor's mother who outlived her son. Dee passed away uh, at the age of 61. His mother lived to close to 100. And you were telling a story. She was on her uh, her sickbed. And, and what happened? Yeah, she's uh, she's on her, uh, potentially her her deathbed with this uh, carotid. Uh, what, whatever was wrong with that, it was not good. <laughs> And in comes uh, D. This is in the mid '90s. I think it's 1993, '94, somewhere in that range. And they said, "Mom, I got to show you something. I got to show you something." <laughs> and so he he grabs her, bundles her up, puts her in his dusty pickup, and out they go into the desert, bouncing along. And this is this is rough area. This this is not like uh, a paved highway. This is rough desert. And here she is, very sick, and he's. Taking her, he had he felt compelled. He had to show her something because he didn't know if she was going to going to make it or not. And they pull up to a uh, a low bluff. Uh, we've been there several times, and there's a picture of it in the book. We we show you where it's at. And she says, uh, he says, Mom, this is where Mac found something else. And I think that's all he told her. This is where Mac found something else well uh, Loretta already knew about the, the you know the wreckage well what could it be that compelled Dee Proctor uh, that he felt it was so important that he he take his mother who's on potentially her deathbed out to show her where Mac found something else and we learned from another witness that there were two bodies two little bodies there that had fallen out or were blown out when the th- the craft exploded, and uh, so that's how uh, you know, that's how we found out about it uh, because that's all he told her. Here's where he found something else, and uh, we found later what it was. And uh, we've been there. I won't say uh, Don's been there more times than I have, but uh, I- I've been there tw- twice, I think. And but there's a nice picture of it with me standing on the low bluff. Pointing, pointing out where these two little bodies would have fallen. Right, right. There's, um, you know, it's it's such a. Uh, I mean, back in 1947, it was a bustling little town. It had its own radio station, KGFL, uh, on uh, North Richardson Avenue. There's a wonderful picture uh, there. It's now a hair salon, I believe. Uh, 
but but uh, Mac Brazel was kind of marched there by military ex um, military ex escort rather to re- to uh, to recant his earlier story, and uh, he was on with the the, the announcer Frank Joyce. Um, did you ever speak to um, Frank Joyce's uh, descendants, children, uh, or I don't know how long Frank Joyce lived, but to get his perspective on this story? He's the one that announced it. Well, in fact, we interviewed Frank Joyce many times since uh, 1989, right up to the time of his, uh, his passing, almost uh, now uh, 20 years ago. But uh, keeping in mind that when Brazel reported the incident first to the sheriff's office in Roswell, and who should call up, you know, just getting some late-breaking material for his next newscast, but Frank Joyce from the radio station, KGFL. And the sheriff says, I think there's somebody here you should talk with. So Joyce is the first newsman first media reporter that Brazel speaks with. And he gets the story. And he gets the lowdown also on the bodies. He hears about the bodies. So that's one of the reasons that they had to, you know, grab Brazel, because he's he's seen much more than just wreckage. He has seen non-human bodies associated with the crash. So it's one of the reasons that they then, as you described, Richard, escorted him to the radio station. Joyce is thinking he's going to get, you know, the story of the century. And then he recants, as you mentioned. And he takes him off, Mike. They go out into the lobby, and then Joyce realizes, oh, now I see what's going on. Because through the, the front door, he sees a number of MPs, number of military police standing there waiting for the rancher. And that's when Brazel turns and says to him, you know, Miss Joyce, they told me you would go awful hard on me if I didn't do exactly as I was told. And then just as he started to leave, Joyce then repeats, but what about the little green men? To which Joyce turns back and says, but they weren't green. <laughs> and so that's what ties, you know, the, the whole deep proctor site, you know, also into the Brazel story, the fact that Brazel also was a witness to at least two of the bodies atop that bluff, atop that site. Gentlemen, this was a short uh, segment. Uh, we'll come back and, and finish up some more questions regarding the, uh, the chronology of the Roswell UFO incident, and we'll tell you how to get a copy of this uh, wonderful coffee table book. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We are back. A few moments remain with Tom Carey and Don Schmidt, authors, co-authors of Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. Uh, gentlemen, uh, before we run out of time, tell us how we can get a copy of this uh, wonderful coffee table book. Well, uh, I guess most people uh, th- these days, they go to Amazon. Uh, online or Barnes and Noble, I think it's also uh, online at Barnes and Noble and iTunes and a few other 
uh, online venues, uh, quite frankly, I never heard of. <laughs> but <laughs> you, you uh, can get, get them online. Uh, uh, if it's not on our website, I will put it on there tomorrow. I'll, I'll check tomorrow to see if it's on our website. And you can click there, and I'm sure it will take you to Amazon. And our, our website is uh, www.roswellinvestigator.com. That's www.roswellinvestigator.com. And I don't know, you know, I don't, it's supposed to be in Barnes & Noble bookstores. If they, still, if they still have Barnes & Noble bookstores, you should be able to get it there. All right. Roswell, the chronological pictorial. Um, I wanted to ask you about the counter, the southwestern branch of the counterintelligence corps. You have a picture of the the agents there posing for a picture in uh, Albuquerque in the late forties. Two gentlemen, uh, Sheridan Cabot, and I'm not sure if uh, Colonel Thomas Dubose was a member of the in- counterintelligence corps, but I- I'd like to to hear about these two gentlemen, how they uh, how they fit into this picture, and and what they told you. Well. Uh- Colonel at that time, Thomas J. DeBose, would have been the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force. His boss would have been General Roger Ramey, who happened to be the boss of the Colonel William Blanchard, the base commander of the 509th Bomb Group uh, headquartered at Roswell. So the infamous weather balloon press conference that happened not at Roswell, where they shifted all attention from New Mexico over to Fort Worth Carswell Army Airfield. And the Bose is pictured with his you know, his boss, General Ramey, in two of those pictures of the uh, switched weather balloon with the radar reflector kite. And I'm sure most of your listeners have seen one version or another of, of those pictures. But the Bose before he died as a brigadier general and he signed a sworn affidavit he swore that the balloon was a hoax that it was a cover story to get the press off of the general's back as he put it so he acknowledged that they were the ones who switched the balloon they substituted the balloon for the actual material so we couldn't get a much higher ranked as far as witness to the cover-up in that regard. And in mentioning Sheridan Cabot, he was a captain with counterintelligence. He was stationed at Roswell at that time. He would retire lieutenant colonel. And in interviewing him numerous times, in person and over the phone, he at first would swear he was not even at Roswell and that I was there, but uh, I wasn't involved. And eventually he even acknowledged that, well, it could have been a flying saucer. But I wasn't involved. And then he would go on to become the star witness for the Air Force's Project Mogul Report that came out in 1994, where, you know, he claimed that he was the only one who recognized it for what it truly was, this Russian spy balloon, but he never bothered to tell anyone else at that time. So uh, Cabot, uh, even his own family, his, his sons, Joe and Bates, they tried to get him to talk right up to the time he died, and all he would say was, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So he acknowledged that there was still a truth, that there was still more that he could tell, but he was never ready, and he ran out of time, unfortunately. 
that reminds me, you, you mentioned, you know, his family wanted him to tell more, but he wasn't ready. It reminds me of Nathan Twining. Uh, I guess it's Nathan Twining Jr. who uh, writes the, the foreword, uh, who passed away in 2016, and talking about his dad and how his dad just wouldn't, wasn't prepared ever to, to sort of tell what he knew to his own son. Talk to me about that. We, uh, we were good friends with uh, Nate Twining Jr. He, uh, he had uh, residences in both Albuquerque and Baltimore. And when we would fly into Roswell, we would, would stop overnight on our way in uh, in Albuquerque and stay with Nate Twining Jr. And uh, he told us that his, uh, his father would not, would not discuss uh, Roswell with him, uh, so we had to take him at at face value. But he, uh, uh, Junior, did lead us to several other witnesses, which were a big help to us. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, uh, he always called me Jim Carrey, like, you know, like <laughs> the like the actor. But I said, no, no, it's Tom. But uh, he he said, you guys, meeting Don and me. He said, you guys are my heroes. You guys are my heroes because you're doing what my father would have wanted you to do. And uh, I still remember him saying that. It made, it made us feel very, uh, very re- uh, respected, and, uh, you know, it made us feel good. Uh, just have a, a, f- a few minutes here. One of my favorite uh, stories or witnesses, if you will, is um, U.S. Senator Joseph Montoya, uh, who visited the big hangar and was there in, I guess, kind of a ribbon-cutting ceremony and uh, happened to see some things he wasn't supposed to see. Uh, you actually have the, uh, of the pictures. You identify the, the people that, that drove Montoya home after he saw the, boy, the, the bodies. Uh, tell me about, um, is, it, is it Pete? Uh, Anaya and his wife Mary. Pete, Anaya. Pete and Ruben An- Anaya. They were two brothers. As civilians, they both worked out at the base at that time, and they were also Montoyistas. They were childhood friends of the then Lieutenant Governor, uh, Joseph Montoya, who would then go on to become senator, and they were big campaign supporters. They, uh, they assisted him in uh, you know election campaigns and so um, he would typically stay at the Nixon Hotel in downtown Roswell and so when one of them got the phone call basically come and get me out of here I'm out at the base you can pick me up at the water tower by the big hangar get me out of here and uh, picking him up and in the back seat he just you know you know kept holding his head in his hands and you wouldn't believe it you wouldn't believe it and then uh, I need a drink, I need a drink. And uh, once he got back to one of their homes, and that's when he went on and on how they weren't human. They weren't human. And so the story was that he was taken to Hangar P3, which is now Building 84, and that he was shown the survivor. He, he saw it on the concrete floor and he noticed that the knee was rocking back and forth and he thought he could hear it actually moaning groaning in pain 
And uh, that's when he realized, my God, at first he thought they were children, and then he saw they weren't. But he would always warn the Anayas that if you ever say a word about this, I would tell, you, tell them you're liars. You're liars. You're not telling the truth. Now, Pete's wife, Mary, also described to us that the boys, the husbands, got in trouble. That that very evening, there was a big argument out in the front yard with one of the officers from the base that came to pay a visit to her husband and her brother-in-law. And they were threatened, they were warned at that time that if they ever talked about what had transpired, that uh, the families would also be in jeopardy. Uh, one of the, the documents we don't have time to discuss, and so we'll have to have you back on, but but people can, can buy the book and, and find is I think it's a, maybe, I don't know, agree, disagree, one of the most important documents regarding Roswell, and that is the sealed statement of former Roswell Air Base PIO Walter Hout with instructions to release it after his death. He died in 2007. Just give, we, just, we have about a minute and a half, just, just give people a tease about that, that document. We, uh, we have it as an, uh, a, I think we have it in an appendix uh, in the back of the book. And uh, we, uh, we thought, oh, we knew Walter very well, but all he would ever say publicly was, well, I delivered the press release from uh, my commanding officer to the me- local media, and that, that was it. But, uh, but over the years, we learned from other witnesses that w- Walter... Uh, had to know more than he uh, knew more than what he was telling us. So um, we put together a list of things we believe Walter was involved in and what he knew, and we said, Walter, we would like to get a sealed statement from you because he he was honoring a pledge from his commanding officer never to talk about it uh, while he was still alive. Of all the things he knew, what we believed he knew, and we said, take a look at this with your family, with your lawyer, whoever you want, and uh, add what you would like and subtract what you don't like, and uh, we will uh, put that in a sealed statement, and he agreed to it, and you can find it in the back of the book. And he certainly did know more and was involved in more than what he was uh, saying publicly. Well, again, gentlemen, congratulations on Roswell, the chronological uh, pictorial of Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, just uh, type the title into your uh, your search engine and uh, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, again, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and uh, hope to talk again soon. Thank you, Richard. Look forward to it, Rich. Thank you. All right, when we come back, Preston Dennett, longtime paranormal UFO research- researcher with... 15 never-before-published cases of onboard UFO encounters. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.